Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Can you all hear me okay? Thank you. So I'm going to read our CME code for our folks that are watching us from afar today. Uh, so CME for today is RF3B. Go ahead and enter that for credit. And before I introduce uh, our speaker for today, I want to tell you a little bit about the physician uh, whose memory we honor with today's lecture. The Lewis B. Matthews Visiting Professorship was established in 1990 as a memorial to a member of the first generation of Hitchcock Clinic physicians and a skilled and beloved clinician, educator, and leader who served our institution for over 30 years. Dr. Matthews was a general internist with a special interest in hypertension and vascular disease. He spent the majority of his career at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Clinic, first as a primary care physician and later as a medical director for the medical center. He also served at various times on the Dartmouth Medical School's Dean's Advisory Board and on boards of DHMC, the Hitchcock Clinic, Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital, and the Hitchcock Foundation. Dr. Matthews has been described as the quintessential generalist physician, deeply respectful and supportive of his patients, and valued for his wit and wisdom by his colleagues. As a physician and as a medical center leader, his integrity was beyond reproach as he invested himself in the problems of those for whom he bore responsibility. He cared both for and about his patients, and they returned those feelings in full measure. He embraced the comprehensive mission of the medical center reflecting that whether teaching a student, figuring out an abstruse secret of nature never unlocked before, holding a dying patient's hand, or bringing the awesome power of technology to the L, our purpose, what we are about, is service. In his honor, the Matthews Professorship provides support for inviting to our campus a distinguished leader, scholar, and teacher in medicine who embodies the qualities of mind and heart for which Dr. Matthews is remembered. It also provides us the opportunity to welcome members of Dr. Matthews' family uh, to the lecture to reflect with us on the impact of his legacy. Um, and we're very honored to have Lisa Matthews, um, Dr. Matthews' daughter-in-law, with us today in the audience. Thank you, Lisa, for being here. Um, and now I'd like to tell you about our speaker. Dr. Richard Kravitz is a professor of medicine at the University of California, Davis, and director of the UC Center Sacramento a teaching, research, and public service institution that trains future leaders to address challenging public policy issues facing the state of California and our nation. Dr. Kravitz is a graduate of Stanford University, the University of California's uh, San Francisco School of Medicine, and the University of California Los Angeles School of Public Health. He completed his internship, residency, and a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at, the, at UCLA and served on the faculty there for five years before joining the faculty at UC Davis in the Division of General Internal Medicine. In addition to serving as an institutional leader, a teacher, and a highly productive health services researcher, Dr. Kravitz continues to work as an attending in the clinics and on the medicine consult service. He is former co-editor-in-chief of the uh, Journal of General Internal Medicine and a reviewer for multiple ma major national journals. His scholarship focuses on health communication and individualization of care, including studies of patients acting as agents for improving their own quality of care, the causes and consequences of physician behavior, and the improvement of mental health care in primary care settings. He's authored or co-authored about 280 academic papers 
He has twice won Academy Health's Article of the Year Award and is a recipient of the Society of General Internal Medicine's Best Research Paper of the Year Award, the George Engel Awardee for Outstanding Research Contributing to the Theory, Practice, and Teaching of Effective Healthcare Communication and Related Skills, and the Elnora Rhodes Society of General Internal Medicine Service Award for Outstanding Service to the Mission of Promoting Patient Care, Research, and Education in Primary Care Medicine. Dr. Kravitz has no conflicts of interest to declare um, with, the, with regards to the content of his presentation. And please join me in welcoming him as our Lewis B. Matthews Professor. Um, well, thanks, Dr. Kiefer, for that really warm introduction. I'm, uh, I've been wanting to come to Dartmouth for a long time, and uh, I'm quite glad to be here um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, Dartmouth plays so far above its weight in health services research and its contributions to our national ongoing dialogue about how healthcare should be structured and organized has really been important. And it's also really clear how, um, how cherished this institution is by its own community, and that's really been lovely to see. Um, it's also an honor to give this lecture in memory of Lewis B. Matthews, who, uh, as you heard, was a beloved general internist who practiced at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center for over 30 years. My understanding is that when his family established this lectureship in 1990, they wanted to commemorate a career not only of great accomplishment, but also great integrity. And judging from the list of prior Matthews professors, they've succeeded. Um, a number of these prior professors have influenced my own life and career. Um, Michael Lacombe with his unequal storytelling. Faith Fitzgerald from my own institution of UC Davis for her preternatural diagnostic skills. Um, David Dale through his editorship of the Society's Journal, which I myself later came to edit. Suzanne Fletcher and Harry Selker through their leadership of the Society and uh, Brendan Riley with his book on practical strategies and outpatient management, which I've kept on my shelf uh, for many years uh, and still uh, turn to uh, when, uh, when up-to-date fails me. Um, so thank you to the Matthews family and to Dr. Rostin and Dr. Kiefer, to uh, Steve and Lisa for allowing me to mix with this August crowd. So um, my talk today is about ways that we can custom tailor patient care to better serve the needs of the individual. Um, what I've termed omics, genomics, metabolomics, proteomics, and the like um, will contribute for sure, but I'm going to focus on other precision medicine approaches that can help personalize care in the here and now. So let's begin with a short description of three patients. The first is a 68-year-old uh, woman, a retired hairdresser with atrial fibrillation, considering anticoagulation. The second is a 28-year-old uh, female internal medicine resident interested in addressing motivational challenges to exercise. And the third um, is a 54-year-old male plumber. Some of you may recognize him if you were around for the 2008 election. Um, this is Joe the plumber, with diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol, who feels, some of you were maybe in high school then, uh, who feels achy on statins. So um, keeping these patients in mind, we'll start with the motivation for developing a personalized data science. Um, the, our talk is organized around this concept of heterogeneity of treatment effects, the idea that the same treatment can work differently in different patients. 
We'll delve into how to deal with HTE and how patients might benefit as a result of, of taking on this challenge. So what's the problem we're trying to solve? Um, clinical evidence emphasizes averages, but unlike the person in the middle here who is a composite of the multiple images surrounding him, we are not composites. We are simply individuals. We are ourselves. The issue is that patients want to know not how well does this treatment work on average, but rather how well will this treatment work for me. And this is a, this is a problem um, because our, um, our clinical research enterprise isn't oriented in this way. And as Alan Rosas, the former CEO of Glaxo, and thus the quintessential insider of, of uh, the pharmaceutical industry said, our treatments don't work for most patients. So as evidence of that, we can look at um, a series of treatment condition pairs and, and uh, examine the proportion of patients uh, receiving substantial net benefit from available therapies. And you can see this ranges from um, around 25 to 30% for cancer and Alzheimer's disease all the way up to about 80% for acute musculoskeletal pain. Depression is there at around 60%. Even that could be an overestimate, um, as uh, I don't need to bring Coles to Newcastle, but as you know, the number needed to treat is calculated as one divided by the absolute treatment effect. So in major depression, um, we see rates of remission of around 60% on therapy, around 40% in placebo, so the NNT is five. What this means is that two patients never remit, two would have remitted anyway on placebo, and that leaves one out of five who is uh, remitting from their major depression because of treatment. Uh, and NNTs for other conditions are often much larger than five. Five is actually pretty good. So uh, how can this be? Doesn't the FDA certify treatments as safe and effective uh, based on the results of two well-conducted randomized controlled trials? Yes, but the question is safe and effective for whom? Randomized trials generate average effects the net benefit derived from treatment averaged over all the patients in a trial. These averages may or may not be relevant to the individual patient. Looking at the lower figure, the average patient might derive a small net benefit from treatment, but some patients receive much larger than average effects and others much smaller. Some may even be harmed by therapy. So why don't treatments work for everybody? Um, the, the short answer is because patients differ, and we can, we can look at how they differ in, in two different ways. The standard taxonomy would say patients differ along dimensions of genetics, environment, and behavior, or the interactions between them. Another way of looking at this more functionally is to consider uh, risk of an adverse outcome without treatment, responsiveness to treatment, vulnerability to adverse effects of treatment, and patient preferences or utilities. So while RCTs generate average treatment effects, what's actually relevant are individual treatment effects, or ITEs. The ITE is the difference between your uh, outcome on treatment A versus treatment B. 
ITEs only differ from average treatment effects in the presence of heterogeneity of treatment effects. If there isn't that kind of uh, bell curve distribution or any kind of distribution of outcomes, then the, the ATE is just fine. And in many cases, that's true, but in many cases, it's not. ITEs are not routinely estimated in randomized controlled trials, partly of necessity, because when you have one-time outcomes, you like death, you can't go back and repeat the study on a, on a different therapy. Um, but partly by design, because crossover studies in which the same patient receives two or more treatments o over the course of time are rarely used. Still, ITEs are the holy grail of medicine. They're what we're truly after. So aside from wanting to get a handle on um, which treatments work for which patients, there's another reason for trying to drill down to the individual. As highlighted in this table, um, patient recruitment is a singular challenge for clinical trials. And you can perhaps barely make out that in this article from JAMA of 894 uh, clinical trials, some 20% um, some were not completed, and the majority of those were because of failed patient recruitment. So perhaps if we want to get patients more engaged in clinical research, we need to focus a little bit more on the kinds of outcomes that they're truly interested in. So um, what can be done about all this? How can we get closer to generating individual treatment effects? Um, broadly speaking, there are two general approaches for doing this. Um, one is to try to assemble um, patients that are similar to the patient at hand. I call that the patient-like-me approach. And the other is to take the same patient and switch them off between treatments. And I simply call that me. So under the first strategy, we can stratify by risk factors, which otherwise known as subgroup analysis. We can perform stratification by risk using multivariable predictive equations of risk. We can try to match up similar patients and match pairs analysis. We can try to assemble huge data sets and overcome with large numbers what we couldn't accomplish by design. Um, we can also uh, collect lots of data on an individual patient over time. That's what we'll refer to as small data or personalized data science. Uh, or we can switch patients back and forth amongst treatments, and that's um, referred to as N of 1 trials. So in this talk, um, I, I understand we're only going to 12 noon. Is that correct? <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eliminate two of these and focus on the first two and the last two. So let's start with stratification by risk factors, otherwise known as subgroup analysis. In this approach, investigators report the main results of the trial, and uh, then they report results for selected subgroups, men versus women, African Americans versus whites, et cetera. The problem with this one variable at a time approach is that huge sample sizes are required to drill down to very specific subgroups. And uh, the differences that are found often turn out to be false positives. So this can get us into a lot of trouble clinically. This table assembled, assembled by Peter Rothwell and reproduced in a paper by David Kent is a sampling of subgroup findings that were originally thought to be true but later turned out to be false. Um, so we have to exercise a lot of caution with, with variable by variable subgroup analysis. So an alternative to the one variable at a time approach is uh, risk stratification, 
Risk stratification is a force multiplier. The main idea is that most heterogeneity in, in um, treatment effects, um, that is the risk of an adverse outcome on treatment A minus the risk on treatment B, is due to baseline differences in risk of a poor outcome. So it, it's easy to see this as a mathematical fact. If a treatment reduces the risk of an adverse outcome by 50% and the baseline risk is 10%, then that's a 5 percentage point absolute reduction. If the baseline risk is 50%, that would be a 25 percentage point absolute risk reduction. And using a multivariable risk prediction index rather than individual risk factors increases power to detect HTE many-fold. Such prediction formulas are now available for lots and lots of conditions. This slide shows some examples of clinically important risk-based HTE, and mostly in the cardiovascular realm. So focusing on the first example, carotid endarterectomy is, a, is an effective treatment for stroke prevention in patients with carotid artery stenosis. But the, the benefits are concentrated among those patients who are at the highest risk for stroke and the lowest risk for a poor operative outcome. Among other patients, the benefit is not so great. So one needs to take a, an individualized approach. Similar patterns have been found for non-valvular atrial fibrillation, for coronary artery disease, and for acute coronary syndrome, as well as many other conditions. So um, you might ask, why is baseline risk so important? When treatments themselves convey substantial risks, and you can think about carotid endarterectomy or bypass surgery or the use of biological therapy in rheumatic disease, there are times when the risk of treatment outweighs the risk of disease. Um, remember, well-conducted randomized trials are the pinnacle of the evidence-based medicine evidence hierarchy. However, many trials can uh, contain a lot of patients at moderate risk or, or low risk, and a few patients at extreme risk. And this can change, this can create differences between the average risk, which is where the focus of the RCT is, and the risk for the typical patient. So imagine you have 10 patients in a trial, nine of them have a 5% risk of an adverse outcome, and one a 50% risk. Well, then the average risk for that cohort of 10 patients is 9.5% almost twice as high as the risk for the typical patient. And this is not a particularly unusual situation. For the low-risk patient, treatment-related benefits may not outweigh harms by much, if at all. So um, let's return to our first patient, um, the 68-year-old woman with atrial fibrillation and a history of bleeding who's thinking about starting anticoagulation with warfarin or apixaban. Um, what we want to do is, is integrate her risk, of, um, her risk of stroke with her risk of an adverse outcome for treatment or bleeding, and essentially combining the CHAZ2-VAS score with the HAZ-BLED score. Fortunately, there is a tool that allows us to do this. It's called the atrial fibrillation tool. You can enter data about this patient, and you can then discover um, what her baseline risk is in the top slide, and then what her risk of of uh, stroke and bleeding would be on warfarin to your left and apixaban to your right. And you can see that at baseline, her risk of stroke in a year is about 6 in 100. This gets reduced to 2 in 100 by either therapy. But whereas warfarin increases her risk from 2% to 3%, 
uh, apixaban um, doesn't, doesn't budge that by much. So the, the patient is presented with these pictograms, which, um, which show uh, her risk, her combined risk of stroke and bleeding together so she can make a more informed decision. And in case you were wondering about the provenance of uh, this model, I can assure you it came in part from a very reliable place. <laughs> All right. So um, what, about, um, what about small data? So, so far we've been talking about how to tweak randomized controlled trial-based evidence in order to make it more applicable to the individual. One useful approach is to stratify patients by risk using models like we just saw. Now we're going to move on to look at the potential of so-called small data. So, so small data is, is not really small. It can, small data can refer to giant masses of data, um, but usually these are large amounts of data on a single individual whose purpose is to empower and serve the needs of the individual rather than to draw generalizable uh, conclusions. So the difference is really in, in objective rather than in type or amount. Uh, because the connotation of small data has been disputed, some people prefer the term personalized data science. Whatever you want to call it, small data is part of a larger consumer movement. It's not really driven so much by doctors, um, but, uh, but by patients and by individuals in the, in the tech industry, who um, data geeks, essentially, who become very, very interested in the idea of self-tracking uh, as, a, as a means to improve their health and their lives. And the, you can see on this slide some examples of organizations that are deeply into this. Small data has been um, picked up by some un unlikely characters. Um, this is Michael Snyder, the chair of genomics at Stanford University, um, not, located not too far away from my home campus at UC Davis. Uh, he's... Um, the, uh, the quintessential omics person, right? But he and his uh, lab group developed a seven-channel self-tracking device that Dr. Snyder uh, uh, used himself, and um, having noted some abnormalities, led to an early diagnosis of Lyme disease in, in this investigator. So... Um, Let's examine a use case for small data by returning to our 28-year-old internal medicine resident who wants to exercise more consistently. So um, this woman has the opportunity to, to sign up for one of Karina Davidson's studies in New York City um, through Columbia University. And the resident records her stress levels three times a day and keeps a Fitbit on for six months. She's really devoted to this thing. And at the end, she gets the report that you can probably barely read at the bottom that basically says on days that she's stressed, she's less likely to exercise. So, um, now, you might think that would be obvious, but I can, I can show you later, if you like, um, a... Uh, a kind of a data, a data printout that shows that individuals differ a lot in terms of the reaction to stress. Some people exercise more when they're highly stressed, some less. But for her, uh, stress was a deterrent to exercise. So she incorporates um, a daily yoga session and finds that she's able to exercise much more consistently. Um, oh, I, di I did want to add before getting into this that as sensors and, and data analytic capabilities improve, one can imagine lots more opportunities for self-tracking and even other tracking. 
UC Davis is exploring a joint venture right now to develop a smart home for uh, elderly patients that can monitor their health and alert caregivers when there's a problem. And, you know, we can imagine and take up later all kinds of potential caveats and privacy concerns that might go along with this, but this is definitely what's coming. So, um, uh, the uh, potential benefits of, of small data are pretty easy to see. You can identify personalized triggers for adverse events. They're doing this at UCSF with atrial fibrillation, um, and, and uh, lots of people do have their own, their own triggers for paroxysmal AFib. You can sometimes identify individual treatment effects if patients are trying different treatments over time, but, uh, of course, Small, small data or personalized data science studies are generally observational, and so all the caveats of observational trials apply. And, and you can use it like our 28-year-old resident to inform personalized treatment and lifestyle decisions. Um, there are uh, some concerns, however. One is the, the obvious um, privacy issue. Um, last month, I came across an article entitled What Google, Google Knows About You. And um, it turns out quite a bit. This is, um, this is actually a map that tracks my location on November 6, 2015. Um, I was, uh, you know, there's a couple of scary things about this. One is that, uh, you know, I was aware what, that I, I was down in lower Manhattan for a meeting of the publishers of the Journal of General Internal Medicine. So that I remember. Um, uh, but I have no idea what I was doing up near Broadway. Um, but, but Google seems to know. And also, there is some error prone because Google says that I was, I was on a bicycle for seven minutes and maybe I was walking just really, really fast, but um, nothing's perfect. Um, there's also uh, some less obvious caveats. Um, several of these are treated in more detail by Tamar Sharon in the article that's referenced at the bottom. But these, these issues fall into three general categories. First, self-tracking data, as we mentioned, are traditionally observational. And as with any non-randomized study, there's all the problems with confounding and drawing incorrect causal inferences. So that's, that's fairly easy to dispense with. Second, there are privacy concerns, but also the danger that by Focusing too much on the individual, we might ignore some of the broader social determinants of health. Um, for, for example, if, you know, by focusing on, on an individual stress level, we're implicitly ignoring crime, the availability of unobstructed sidewalks, parks, and so on, uh, environmental factors that might affect uh, exercise. Um, and there's also the problem of reductionism, claiming that the things that we can measure are inherently important, whereas the things we can't measure are not, which, of course, would, would also uh, be misleading. And finally, um, for clinicians, there's this problem of suffocation by data, because uh, nothing's more scary for me as a clinician than to have a patient come in with a, a thumb drive and say, doctor, I'd like uh, to go over the last eight years of my heart rate variability studies. So mind if we look at those together? So... Um, uh, leaving small data behind, we come now to the 
um, to the last approach for indi uh, estimating individual treatment effects that I'm going to talk about today, and that's N of 1 trials. So N of 1 trials really fall into the, um, into the broad category of small data studies, but they, they harness the power of experiment. They're in many ways the most rigorous and the most elegant uh, approaches that we've discussed. Not only are they the gold standard for rigorous evidence-based individualization of care, but they potentially teach participants something about science, what it means to have a control, why random assignment matters, how measurement works. So uh, I think that N of 1 trials have a potential benefit not only to patients, but um, ultimately to the broader society. Um, let's, let's say one thing about what they are. So, so N of 1 trials, again, they're, they're experimental uh, approaches in a single patient. The unit of analysis is the time interval. The essential features are either randomization or some kind of balanced um, balancing of these time intervals by treatment. So you might get treatment A, treatment B, treatment A, treatment B, or as illustrated here, um, a more uh, complicated scheme, such as ABBA and so forth. And there needs to be systematic, repeated outcomes assessment. Uh, N1 trials can be useful in three general ways. First, um, they can inform treatment of, uh, they can inform treatment or lifestyle decisions for an individual patient using that patient's N of 1 results only. Um, you can also combine that patient's results with the results of previous similar N of 1 trials in other patients. This is what Bayesians call borrowing from strength. Um, secondly, N of 1 trials can inform treatment or lifestyle decisions for future patients, and you do this by aggregating series of N of 1 trials in a kind of meta-analysis. And finally, N of 1 trials are an opportunity, the most direct way, actually, to assess uh, heterogeneity of treatment effects. So one, one obstacle to the broader implementation of so-called N of 1 trials has been confusion as to whether they represent clinical care or research. Um, the correct answer is that they can be either or both. As clinical care, the goal of N of 1 trials is to promote optimal patient care in that individual. As research, it's to generate generalizable knowledge. Informed consent is needed in either case, but um, oversight by, uh, by institutional review boards, by IRBs, may not be needed if the primary purpose is clinical care. N of 1 trials are applicable to a fairly narrow range of clinical uh, conditions and treatments. The conditions need to be chronic and stable. You need treatments that are fairly fast-acting and that wash out quickly. Uh, there needs to be some heterogeneity of treatment effects, or you need to at least suspect that there is. Otherwise, there's no point in doing N of 1 trials. The treatment works the same for everybody. And you need to have outcomes that are um, uh, repeatable and sensitive to change. So you can imagine that a uh, good fit for N of 1 trials would be conditions like these, fibromyalgia, insomnia, ADHD, asthma, and um, there are others that are poorer fits, cancer, acute coronary syndrome, major depression, for all for different reasons. Um, so why if N of 1 trials seem to be such a good idea, have, have they um, 
not been more widely adopted. They've been around, after all, in medicine since the early 1980s, really borrowed from psychology going back much further. So there's been several challenges. One is sociological, I guess I'd say. Um, we did focus groups with doctors and patients about 10 years ago, and um, uh, it turns out that N of 1 trials kind of require a, a paradigm shift in thinking. It's not the doctor who knows what to do anymore, but both the doctor and the patient are acknowledging a certain degree of uncertainty and embarking on an experiment, which itself can, can be a scary word to some patients. Part of the problem is practical. You know, many doctors and patients just decide it's, it's not worth the trouble to go through this sort of rigorous switch-off experiment as opposed to usual or more typical clinical care in which we say, you know, try this, we have the patient come back, and we say, how do you think the treatment is working? And they say, I think it's, think it's helping, and we'll tell them to continue it. So not worth the trouble. Um, so what's needed to overcome these barriers is likely two forms of, of support. One is education of patients and physicians as to the value of, of embarking on a course of increased therapeutic precision to sort of parallel our our intense interest and focus on diagnostic precision as aided by tests and imaging. And the other is um, the development of new technologies that can make the implementation of N of 1 trials much, much easier. So we put this theory that these two uh, uh, endeavors, the educational and the practical, would um, would have some value in the NIH-funded uh, PREEMPT study, Personalized Research for Monitoring Pain Treatment. This was a six-year study, it turned out, um, with two components. One was infrastructure development to help to move physicians and patients along and make their lives easier in, in, in joining in these trials. And, and the second was actually a, a full-blown randomized controlled trial uh, that enrolled patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain and randomized them to participate in a N of 1 trial they developed with their own clinicians versus usual care. So um, PREEMPT attempted to overcome previously noted limitations to N of 1 trials in several ways. Um, the first was to uh, allow for a number of patient-centered treatment options. Um, we also created a mobile app that reminded patients when to switch off between treatments and helped to ease data collection. And we automated the statistical analysis. The study design was pretty simple. It was a randomized controlled trial. We took patients with subacute and chronic musculoskeletal pain. We randomized them to participate in N of 1 versus control. And we followed them up at 3, 6, and 12 months, asking them for patient-reported outcomes. Um, for patients who were randomized to the N of 1 group, uh, the first step was to meet with their clinician and view a screen like this on the clinician's desktop. The patient and clinician would decide together amongst a number of different treatment options, which together would comprise regimen A and regimen B. So under each regimen, they could select from acetaminophen, any NSAID, a variety of short-acting opioids, tramadol, and a number of complementary and alternative therapies. And that would be compared to a different checklist with the same options in regimen B. They could also decide how long they wanted the trial to go, how long they wanted each interval of treatment to be, and how many pairs or switch-offs they wanted to undertake. Because, of course, the, the more switch-offs, the more precise the answer at the end, but also the more patients required to, to stick with the trial. 
So um, they were also provided access to the Trialist app, which, um, again, helped them uh, to remember what treatment to be on at any given time and also prompted them to provide um, reports of patient-centered outcomes, including um, pain intensity and a number of side effects that were associated, uh, potentially associated with treatment. They also got over here on the far right a um, uh, uh, simple line graphs of how they were doing over time, although the, the treatment intervals themselves were not marked off. So it wasn't, it, the purpose of this wasn't to explicitly give patients interim feedback on how they were doing, but rather just to um, provide them with some motivation to continue in the trial. And it turns out um, that this was highly valued by patients. And then at the end, patients and physicians sat down and reviewed a series of output graphs. This is one of them. And you can see in this example, um, treatment A in red seems to be better than treatment B in blue along all of the outcomes examined, except that for sleep problems and constipation, there's some overlap with, uh, with the null value, so the confidence wasn't as high. Um, the overall design of the preempt study was that we took uh, ultimately 215 patients with musculoskeletal pain and randomized them to end of one or usual care. The primary outcome was pain-related interference at six months. Um, and we had a number of secondary outcomes, so other clinical outcomes of 3, 6, and 12 months, pain intensity, um, global physical and mental health, medication-related shared decision-making, adherence, and satisfaction with care and trust. And um, here are the main results, which uh, were admittedly somewhat disappointing. Starting at the top, uh, you can see that there, uh, at six months, there was about a three-point improvement in um, pain-related interference for the N of 1 group and a 1.85-point uh, improvement, again, on a 100-point um, promise pain interference scale for the control group. Um, that uh, led to a difference in differences of 1.36 points, which was uh, not statistically significant. And similar results were obtained for pain intensity. So some improvement, but um, probably not important on a clinical level and, and short of statistical significance on a statistical level. Um, there were some other outcomes of importance. Um, one was that we had relatively few refusers to the study. Once we were able to explain what we were after, um, patients uh, did seem, patients of the doctors who participated, and there were 44 clinicians involved with the study, um, patients seemed to um, be relatively enthusiastic about the idea. Um, there was a significant difference between the intervention and control group in terms of medication-related shared decision-making. So just the fact of bringing doctors and patients together to develop their own personalized experiment and to run it um, even six months down the road resulted in, in reports of, of, uh, of more patient engagement. And finally, we learned through a parallel qualitative study that patients valued the self-tracking aspects of the app as much or more than the results of the study itself, the statistical results that we presented at the end. So uh, they learned a lot about themselves in terms of triggers of their pain, the value of therapies, and, and so on. Um, so we learned a few lessons from this study. Um, the first was, uh, of course, that there was no clear signal of clinical benefit, and if I can find it, I'll quote 
from the editorial. Yeah, this led the editorialists in the JAM Internal Medicine article, which was published last month, to conclude. Um, with everything said, we empathize with our colleagues, but for now, this may represent another instance of a beautiful idea being vanquished by cruel and ugly evidence. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, however, we also learned that investigator depression is transient. So here you see uh, the average PHQ-8 scores for our investigative team. You note that at baseline, the average score was around 5, which is... Uh, quite typical in my experience for health services researchers. That would be in the dysthymic range. Um, so uh, when preliminary analysis showing no significance, uh, that went up to a score of eight, which was uh, obviously worse. Um, our statistician then came back to us and said, you know, I found a model in which it seems like we were eking out some statistical significance, so we were transiently much happier. Um, but it turned out that model was wrong. Um, and it, after the final analysis results came back, we, uh, our, our scores again spiked till nine. Um, but uh, six months later, we were right back to our same old dysthymic baseline. Um, the third lesson is that context matters. And just as randomized controlled trials don't necessarily tell us much about individual treatment effects, um, a randomized controlled trial of N of 1 trials may not tell us everything about which patients are likely to benefit, which are not, and uh, in which ways context matters. So that brings us to our last patient. Um, He's a 54-year-old man who uh, gets achy when he's on statins, and he's, he's really similar, as it happens, to the patients who are enrolled in the study that was reported by Joy et al. in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, he and his doctor elected to enroll in an N of 1 trial in which um, the patient was subjected to three pairs of treatment, three weeks on statins or placebo, three weeks washout, and then three weeks on the alternative therapy. And when the um, results were reviewed, it turns out that the uh, visual analog scale myalgia score was almost exactly the same on statin and placebo. The patient elected to restart his statin, thus promoting his own cardiovascular health and maybe leading to uh, a longer, healthier life. Ta-da. So um, that brings us to our, our conclusion. So... Um, in conclusion, a combination of, of biostatistical and technical innovation is starting to unlock individual treatment effects. And while it's true that genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and the like are capturing a lot of attention, the approaches we're talking about here are complementary means to the same ends and shouldn't be neglected. Because whether we're basic scientists clinicians, biostatisticians, or computer scientists, we all share the goal of upending Alan Rosas' observation that our treatments don't work for most patients. Um, what we'd really like to see is a day, what we'd like to come to is a day when using the right tools, we can find a treatment for most patients that works. So with that, I'll conclude, and I'd be happy to take questions. So I thought your taking on the topic of chronic musculoskeletal pain for an N of 1 trial was really pretty bold. 
And uh, because those patients often are characterized by catastrophizing, right? And you're a, and they're usually high-level reporters of symptoms. And you're taking a device and allowing them to use that device to play to their their uh, uh, play to their reporting capability. Is that right? Did you control for the use of a device in that trial? Because the more technology, the more the placebo effect. I'm think, thinking that if you had control for technology, you might have had a negative effect. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly possible. Now, the, the control group, um, you know, received some basic education on chronic pain, but um, we're not equipped. I mean, they had a device as a criterion for entry into the study so that they could be randomized, but they weren't, they weren't provided with any way of self-tracking, which would have been interesting. That would have been a a really important third control group. Um, and, and I think another issue you're raising is the possibility that tracking itself could lead to higher pain levels because it might result in an increased focus on, on pain. We didn't hear that in our qualitative interviews, but um, it may have been something patients were unaware of. Um, I, I don't know how much this applies to the preempt trial. I'm interested in your view, but you're you're uh, you're quoting that rather devastating editorial about a beautiful idea, sort of upended by devastating. By cruel evidence, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what that brought to mind for me was was your your reference to reductionism and, and how often what's most important to measure is subjective and context specific. Um, but what came to mind when you read that quote was frequent this rather Bayesian thinking um, in, in response. In other words, a lot of beautiful ideas are beautiful ideas because an informed higher would, would, would have a different interpretation than an uninformed higher. Am I making sense? Right, you are, you are. And, and you know, we, all, we always worry about negative trials, um, you know, especially uh, in the early stages of an idea's evolution um, because uh, it can stop a field in its tracks um, if the results are overinterpreted. And we tried in the article to, um, to address uh, various reasons why, you know, the primary outcome failed, right? Um, and um, so I, you know, I... I, I so so what, would have, what would your informed, um, what would your informed prior have been? Before you knew the results, um, well, clearly we wouldn't we wouldn't have undertaken the study. I think unless our, our prior was that um, we actually had two two theories of how n of one trials might work in preempt. Number one, we thought patients might actually land on um, treatment combinations that were either more effective or potentially safer in terms of use of fewer opioids. <laughs> Um, and number two, we thought that through the engagement process with their with their clinician, that would um, that would create more, greater patient involvement and care, which itself has been associated with better outcomes. So our prior was clearly that there would be some benefit, um, and we found we found a little benefit, just not not enough to fuel the next study. Thanks very much. Enjoyed your talk. I, I, I wonder if you could give us more information on whether patients were blinded to what treatment they were on during the N of one sequences. I know in, in some of the literature in the 80s, they start the point that you might have to take treatment A and treatment B to an independent pharmacy and have it compounded into identical-looking capsules, 
there was a controversy as to whether only the patient was blinded or the patient and physician, with the pharmacist being the dispensing agent. But I didn't hear how important that was when you ran your N of 1 or whether you thought that didn't really matter. Yeah, it's an excellent question because um, sometimes when people outline the key characteristics of N of 1 trials or the key elements, they, you know, it's randomization, systematic outcomes measurement, and blinding. Blinding is often the third. I, I feel like blinding is a bit controversial. In our case, we, we actually, there was no way because we allowed so many options, there was really no way to implement blinding. Um, there is, uh, you know, a scientific rationale for, um, sorry, <laughs> for, not, for not blinding. Um, and that's, if, if you're interested in the total treatment effect, which is the combination of the biological effect plus the placebo effect, if you will, um, and you're comparing that equally in the two groups, then maybe that's still a scientifically valid comparison. Yeah, and that's what I thought you were describing, but I just... That is what I was describing, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm particularly interested in diseases that have inexorable or progression over time like cancer. And what are kind of the current, what's the current thinking about how to do these kinds of trials in those conditions? Yeah. Well, um, actually, one of, the, one of the current leaders in the NM1 field, Sunita Vora in uh, Alberta, Canada, is, um, is, has been quite focused on palliative care interventions. So um, for symptoms that respond in the short term, um, N of one trials can be quite useful for, um, you know, for diseases that are chronically progressive or inexorably progressive. They're not as, of course, they're not as good because you don't, you don't really have time to switch off. You're sort of needing to rely on your, on your best guess. So, it's, so N of one trials have not been used and wouldn't be applicable to chemotherapy or radiotherapy and the like. I'm sure that's not what you're suggesting, but there, there, are, there are certainly lots of applications in palliative care and symptom management. And, and really, as our treatment armamentarium for cancer expands, uh, so does the uh, spectrum of adverse effects. And so that, that might be an important place to try this. Um, I had a general question about, you talked a little bit about uh, using NM1 trials and then creating meta-analyses of them to infer some broader information beyond the individual treatment effect for the person involved. Um, are those pieces of information, when put together, better, worse, or the same than population studies, which you pointed out all sorts of faults in at the beginning for any individual person knowing what, whether it worked for them? Um, right. Well... Um, you know, you have to start with the limitations of N of 1 trials and how they, uh, they're, you know, they're only applicable to a very, a fairly highly select set of conditions and treatments. But putting that aside, um, they, uh, the one advantage of a meta-analysis of N of 1 trials, and there haven't been very many, there's been, I think there's been some in ADHD, um, maybe in insomnia, um, uh, oh, there's been one, there's been several in fibromyalgia. My statistical colleague, Christopher Schmidt at Brown, not too far from here, has been um, really a pioneer in this area. But the, uh, the one advantage of meta-analysis of N of 1 trials is that you have direct access to the ITE. You have the individual treatment effect for each individual, so you actually know what the distribution of individual effects are. So you, have, you get more information than you would get from a parallel group randomized control trial. <coughs> 
or meta-analysis of same. I was interested in, in your noting that you worked with 44 different clinicians. I don't know if that was through a practice-based research network or um, other mechanism. But I know that from the um, end of one studies that I've done, mostly with ADHD, I find it both exhausting and exhilarating to, to do it. And I'm wondering on what the impact was of this work on those clinicians, not just on the investigators whose you know, PDQ rose and fell, but what was it like to, yeah. for, for these clinicians to participate? Very highly relevant question. So, so we did do some, uh, some interviews with the clinicians after the study, and um, uh, here our prior was a little different. We were very gratified that we were able to get these clinicians to participate. It wasn't easy. Um, it took a while to explain the concept to them. We knew from our prior qualitative work years ago that we were going to be greeted with considerable skepticism, and our, our finding... Um, 10 years ago was that the more uh, a, a clinician knew about research, the more engaged they were with research, the more skeptical they were, because it is a break from the standard paradigm of, of parallel group RCTs. Um, but in our interviews with these clinicians afterwards, they were, they were pretty uniformly enthusiastic. They, they felt we tried to organize things so that they weren't spending that much more time than they ordinarily would. We had, a, we had an RA there in the research assistant there in the office to make sure that the setup screen was all, all ready for them and that they were both the clinician and the patient were prepared to undertake this discussion. And um, so, um, so we, we got pretty positive feedback. So in the spirit of Hope Springs Eternal, What's next? Or test this model? Yeah. Um, so we thought a, uh, quite a bit about this. Um, uh, I think in the um, one problem that we may have encountered in this study is uh, under the the rubric of musculoskeletal pain are a lot of different individual conditions. So there's a lot of heterogeneity to start, and that may have limited our ability to show, show differences. So we will, we, I mean, we, what was attractive about it is that this is how patients present in primary care, and it was easier to recruit patients by having a broader set of diagnostic criteria for inclusion. But we probably narrow the criteria um, Maybe we'd focus, if we're going to stick with pain, we'll focus on axial pain or, or even degenerative arthritis of the knee or, or hip. We might narrow the uh, number of, uh, of treatments that are permitted. Um, uh, we, um, we might tweak some of the measurements that we made. Um, we might select different conditions. Um, we, you know... This, this talk, the underlying theme of this talk is HTE, and we did examine, yeah, I'm surprised no one has asked so far, we did examine, we did perform a subgroup analysis, a variable by variable analysis to see if there were patient factors that predicted response to the end of one trial as the treatment. And um, we did a lot of comparisons, and we found very few statistically significant results. One of them was that patients who were on opioids at baseline responded less well to the end of one intervention than patients who were not on opioids. And in fact, the, the p-value associated with participation in end of one trials for non-opioid patients was something like um, 0.035. So it was you know, statistically significant. But because it was one of 
dozens of comparisons we needed to discount that. But that's another clue that maybe the opioid patients were just too wedded to their therapy already, or uh, they were more, you know, they have more intractable uh, clinical pain problems or whatever it was. So um, we're open to suggestions because we're, you know, I don't think there's any clear path forward, um, but we're not ready to give up on the concept. I just had a question about when you're using the N of 1 trials for patient care rather than research. Because you have an N of 1, I would imagine it's not really possible to use our traditional statistical analysis tools to say whether there was a difference between, say, treatment A and treatment B. So are there any, is there any practice for how you do that? How do you, is it just kind of general feel that things were a little bit better or are there statistical tools? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes the results are just dramatic and there's no, there's no question. Like one of the early, um, early patients reported in this area by Gordon Guyatt, who, by the way, was one of the editorialists and has, you know, uh, pulled out that great, that great phrase that we've now repeated twice. Um, but his, his, one of the first patients he reported was a, a patient with asthma, and they weren't sure whether theophylline was helping or hurting. So that was in the era when theophylline was commonly used. And it turned out when they broke the code of his N of 1 trial, he was much worse on the theophylline. And this patient had gastroesophageal reflux, and the theophylline was making, making that worse. So it was, just, it was just like obvious. They didn't know which was which, but they knew whatever it was. Um, you know, he was having terrible asthma and cough on and on one and, and not on the other. So sometimes it's dramatic. But the other ways of looking at results are graphical. So there's a number of graphical approaches. And statistical, ranging from the very simple, like if you think, um, if your prior is that the treatments are about 50-50 and you're comparing pairs, you know, the probability of having two pairs that favor the same treatment, it's like having two boys in a row. It's 0 0.5 times 0 0.5. That's the p-value, actually, is 0.25, and then 0.125, and 0.0625, and so on. So it depends. If you do enough pairs you could, and you have consistent results, you can see statistical significance. But then, of course, there's also more complex statistical modeling approaches, um, which uh, are now an increasing focus in the literature. And maybe following on that, if, if a clinician and patient wanted to do an off-label end of one trial, not, not knowing that it'll work, it's proven to work, um, are there t practical tools that we can use? You know, with, how do we get that data display? How do we? Yeah, so, so for a while, the Trialist app was available in the, uh, in the Apple Store and on Google Play. Um, I think... Um, I think it might still be there, but the apps the apps don't work because they require some backend support. But there is an organization called OpenM Health that is is trying to work on making tools like this more generally available. Um, and and the idea, of course, would be to ex to extend these to a broader range of conditions. So right now, the the outcomes that we that our app tracks are all related to chronic pain and the side effects of treatment, but. This could be broadened and extended. So right now, it's kind of a cottage industry. Um, and you, you know, we're happy to share whatever we have. It's all open source. But um, there's, no, there's no real commercial application yet. I could talk more. There's actually been attempts to commercialize N of 1 trials over time, including a company that would do mail order N of 1 trials, where they'd send you 
placebo bottles and real pills and so on. And you can track it by paper and send it back, and their statistician would analyze it. But now there, so there are companies that I believe are starting to work on this, but there's no real clear solution yet. I think we're at the end of our hour, so well, thank you for. for great